Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go and check out Dicetower.com to see all of the great sister podcasts in the network, as well as a huge amount of resources for board gamers interested in reviews, news, and commentary. That's Dicetower.com. The Long View is generously sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. Go and check out all the Gamesurplus.com has to offer and find out why they're my first choice for board gaming purchases. They have a huge selection, a constant stream of hard-to-find imports coming in, and unparalleled customer service. Whether it's finding a game that is difficult for people to get here in the U.S., um, shoot Velma an email over at uh, games at gamesurplus.com, and she'll be able to help you out. Whether it's making sure that your games arrive safely with a fantastic packaging, they'll be sure that yours gets to you safe and sound. No matter what you're looking for, games at gamesurplus.com is going to be your best bet. So go and check out and find out why they're my favorite retailer. I also would like to send a shout out to my local game store, The Gamer's Edge, in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Conveniently located off of Interstate 80, they are right on Main Street in Stroudsburg. They are convenient to both uh, northeastern PA and northern New Jersey and southern New York. If you're in the area, uh, perhaps coming for a little bit of vacationing, be sure to stop by. Uh, Right on Main Street there, there's plenty of open table space, a huge selection, and lots of other shops. It's a great place to go and visit, so go and check out the Gamer's Edge. And if you do stop by, please be sure to tell them the Longview sent you. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and today I am very pleased to be joined by two new voices on the show. Uh, I'm lucky to be here with Carissa Reed and T.C. Reed, all the way from Washington State. So, uh, T.C., Carissa, welcome, and thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you very much, Jeff, for having us on the show. Yes, thank you. It was very exciting to actually have you contact us and want to be on. Not a problem. My pleasure. It's always great to uh, get to meet new people and uh, hear new voices on the show and, and, you know, give people a chance to talk about the games they find so interesting. Um, you know, as I've always said, if it was just up to me, uh, I would have run out of stuff to talk about a long time ago. So <laughs> it's always great to uh, uh, hear from people. And I appreciate your patience. This is something that we had uh, kind of tossed about a couple of months ago, I think. And, uh, you know, life gets in the way. Things happen. And uh, we weren't able to cross paths until now. So I appreciate uh, the both of you uh, being patient so that we could talk about a very interesting title, which is the subject of tonight's show. Uh, that is the game Churchill. Um, this is a game that was uh, just released uh, this year, uh, twenty fifth. Well, twenty fifteen. Uh, we're now into uh, uh, twenty sixteen, but uh, I still think of it kind of as this year. Uh, it's from GMT Games. It is designed by Mark Herman, uh, who of course is pretty well known for a lot of other games, uh, most notably games uh, I believe like Washington's War and things of that nature. Um, and this is a game that is trying to kind of take a look uh, at the subject of World War II, but from a slightly different angle, a different spin, Uh, looking at it not just from a military point of view, but also a political point of view, uh, with a sort of an eye towards the future, the impending kind of Cold War that's going to follow uh, the Second World War. And so in this game, uh, the players are going to be asked to be one of the big three. So you're either going to be playing Roosevelt uh, slash Truman, uh, or you're going to be playing 
playing Churchill or you're going to be playing Stalin. And uh, half of the game is kind of played um, as sort of a political tug of war, I think I'm going to call it. And then the other half of the game is, is going to sort of manifest what that political tug of war, uh, what that means in the larger world outside in the conflict of the Second World War. So uh, it's a very, very interesting spin. And this is one of the reasons why I backed this game almost immediately upon hearing it. Uh, there's not too many games that are three-player games. Uh, this is a, a very interesting design problem. You'll hear designers talk about the difficulty of a three-player game. And yet, this really seemed like one that maybe uh, would work extremely well, given the subject matter. So I was really drawn to it because of all of those things. Designer pedigree, uh, the number of players, the theme, the idea of looking at World War II from a different perspective, a fresher perspective, was something that I found extremely intriguing. So that's kind of my background with the game. Uh, what got you two so interested in the game of Churchill? Well, for me, I was looking at the game. It came up, and I was looking at an uh, introduction to it, and Mark Herman actually had his wife do it. And I went, hey, Carissa, check this out. Here's a game where this guy's wife is endorsing it and showing us how to play. So we looked at that, and I was like, oh, yeah, this looks amazing. Let's pull the trigger on this. And we, plus, we also are typically do a three-person podcast, so we are looking for a three-player game. Yeah, my interest was uh, I come from a historical background, so it was really refreshing to see something that wasn't simply a war game, that there was more, much more going on to it and in a very unique setup with the diplomacy and the conference table. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that was uh, very intriguing to me as well. So, uh, Carissa, you said you kind of come from a sort of a historical background. So uh, can you maybe tell us a little bit uh, for people who are listening out there? Uh, what do you mean by that? Are you a you know, history teacher? Are you just passionate about history? What, what would you say? Uh, well, it was uh, I ended up with a double major kind of by accident in college. I was a, a <laughs> literature major. But I fell in early on having to take, you know, the basic civ classes in history, fell in with, a, there was a professor um, at my university who was just magnificent. He was very passionate about his subject matter. And so I ended up taking all of his classes and then branching out with some of the other classes that were offered. And I ended up with all these history credits. So I went to the, uh, the dean of the college and, and said, what, can I do something with these, like a minor or something? He's like, take three more classes and you're a double major. <laughs> so that's, that's what fantastic. I did. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it stayed with me. And you know, I got into World War I through that, both in literature and in, in history. And, and that's what I did my master's in, uh, was a study about a war poet. And um, I did some studies in World War II as well. So it's, it's always refreshing to see the innovations that come about in board games um, focused on those wars and um, how they're taken to different levels and new ways of seeing the wars um, on different scales. And this one was impressive in how it achieved that. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that really struck me about this, and, and I want to focus on what you just said there, Carissa, was this idea of perspective. Because in one sense, the game deals with World War II from this intensely personal, small kind of micro view of these three guys sitting around the table 
arguing and trying to parse out what the rest of the world is going to look like, hopefully, right, if we can defeat the Axis powers, right? So this is a very small scale kind of a story. But then on the other side of the board, you have this like really sort of zoomed out view, this like macro view of the war to the front where uh, to the point where you're not really looking at any specific details. You're just kind of looking at these advancing fronts and like what are the resources? What are what are the the things we're going to need to bring to bear to move this forward? And so I really that that perspective that you're talking about is something that I think is really unique to the game because you kind of have both the macro and the micro view in one game. And it's something that I think kind of makes it unique. Is that something that you would agree with, TC, or do you think I'm off on that? Well, for me, the innovation in this game really comes from the card play and the fact that you're actually, as Chris said, it's not a war game. You're using these cards for your conferences to pull agenda to or from you. And then, in effect, that is affecting the military board victory points wise and where fronts move and everything mm-hmm. so on the surface it looks just like a, a war game but it's really not it really it's really focusing on the debates that are going on that the three uh, powers had yeah that's definitely true it's it's nothing anywhere near like a traditional war game feel because you know you don't have the hex encounter kind of systems you don't have combat resolution tables <laughs> um you know and and what you're really dealing with is trying to examine the impact of diplomacy on the world stage during this large conflict. And I don't know that it's, it's always been presented really well how those two were interconnected. And, and so I kind of thought this game did a really nice job with that, um, you know, all the way down to just the economics of the war. Like, you know, where is this production going to come from? Where are we going to commit our production? Um, and sometimes, like, your allies are asking you to commit it where you don't want it, and you kind of are almost forced into a corner, and it's like, well, you know, all right, if I'm going to do this, then I want you, you know, to not fight me on this issue. And so there's this real kind of negotiating that goes on, and then you see the ripples of that on the board right next to you. And, you know, maybe it's just me, but that was something that I hadn't really seen done before in exactly that way. So, all right, so... Carissa, you're kind of coming at this from a historical kind of fan, uh, you know, a person who has studied this uh, period of history. Uh, so, TC, where where did you come in on this one? What what was it that kind of um, sort of drew you to it? Was it that card driven uh, kind of factor, or something else? Well, honestly, just looking at this whole game, just everything about it really intrigued me. For the fact that it had the card play for the for um, advancing issues, you're moving fronts on the board. Um, the fact that it was Mark Herman Design, who I heard from, I hadn't played any of his previous games, but the fact we and Chris like Twilight Struggle a lot, and he um, came up with that card-driven system with, I think, We the People, which ended up being Washington's right, War right. when he redesigned it. Yes. And it was just, everything about it seemed great, and, and if I'm playing with my wife, it's really easy to get her into war games. Uh, it, like this, one of the one of our great regret war games we haven't played all the way through is Paths of Glory, because she's a World War One. Buff. Oh yeah. So just the fact that this was something I knew I could hit the table with the three of us and was really excited about it, it was World War II and I like World War II history. I'm not the history major. I have a biology <laughs> degree and I work in the medical field. <laughs> so anything I can do to interest my wife and and learn something while playing right. it, I really enjoy. Yeah, he's often uh will will have it on the table this game or or another war game and going through it and I'll 
I'll be like, oh yeah, that that completely <laughs> makes yeah that connects. He's like, what, 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 what did I miss? <laughs> so I have to explain it, you know, like the economics. We went through that, and it's like, well, I'm, I'm playing this side, and I've got nothing, but the America's got so much. It's like, yes. Yes, it does. (laughs) Yes, it does. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, Let's talk about Lend-Lease. So, yeah, you know, it's one of those things, again, that uh, is fantastic because it it leads to a lot of discussion and opportunity. Um, And and I think that a lot of games like this one, like Churchill, encourage uh, the players to explore the subject matter a little bit more intensely, a little bit more deeply. It kind of leads you down those paths. So, well, I, I, I appreciate you two kind of telling, you know, how, what got you started uh, in your interest with the game, your involvement in the game. Um, now, while we're on the subject here of, of sort of introductions, I do want to take a few moments to kind of uh, have a, a, a chance to ask the two of you. Uh, you actually are podcasters yourselves. Um, you kind of had mentioned that. You have a podcast, I believe, called uh, The Tattered Board. Yes? We do. So what can you tell us about uh, your podcast and, and a little bit about your mission? Because, of course, that's going to tell us a little bit about something as, uh, about you two as players. You know, um, TC started us on this on this podcast journey, and uh, I wasn't sure I was really wanting to become involved, <laughs> invested <laughs> yeah. in something, you know, that's going to eat up many, many hours. But I wanted to game more, so I went along with it. Um, but no, the way he came about it was the concept of, you know, gamers sitting around and talking about their favorite games and talking about what they're enjoying about playing games. And that's one of the reasons he came up with the name, the tattered board, because he has a game that when he takes it out, you know, corn chips are falling out of the board and he gets teased about it because it hits the table so much and it is beat up, but that's the sign of a great game. Uh, that it's going to hit the table that much. And so we really wanted to come at our podcast um, as a conversation with gamers. And we started off, there were three of us, uh, TC and I and our friend Mike. And then along the way, we picked up Richard and, and Dan. And, and then we have guests whenever we can get them here or go to them or whatever. We're pretty open. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's really our focus is to talk about the games we're playing now, talk about, you know, our current favorites, past favorites, and um, what we enjoy with the gameplay, you know, not so much the, the nuts and bolts of the game itself, but what you take away from the table about your experience there. Right, right. Yeah, and I'm on board with everything you said there except for the chips and the board thing. That, that <laughs> I got to be honest with you. That wouldn't go over well with me, <laughs> tattered board or not. Um, but, yes, I, I totally, uh, all kidding aside, I, I get uh, you know what you're saying there, which is that you know games that are well-worn are well-loved. And uh, there's, there's a reason for that. You know, they, they get a little – the components get frayed and, you know, ink starts to smudge and things get wrinkly uh, because these are the games you're coming back to time and time again. So, uh, well, that's a, a very interesting mission statement, and uh, I appreciate uh, the fact that you guys are doing that. Where, where would people find you if they were interested in checking out more about your podcast? Well, actually, we have two locations now. Our primary one is www.tatteredboard.com. And we have recently allied ourselves with some other local podcasters, and it's called the Pathological Nerdcasters Network. It's nice. www.pncn.rocks, R-O-C-K-S. <laughs> and if you actually want to download our episodes, because we just use a simple WordPress site, 
We have iTunes. We're on iTunes under the Tattered Board, and you can download our episodes on the network. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you for uh, you know letting us know about that. Are there other sister podcasts in your network uh, uh, that people uh, may want to explore? Is there something you could tell us about them? Oh, goodness, yes. We have the Docking Bay 94, which is Jason Hancock's podcast. He's primarily doing the um, Kickstarter stuff, and he's with Talent Strike Studios. I know they're getting – they're pumping out um, – House of Borgia, I think that hit Kickstarter. So if you're interested in Kickstarter stuff, which we usually don't hit Kickstarter stuff a lot. That's Richard's job. Yeah, that's Richard's job. <laughs> so <laughs> we got him. We've also got the, what did he call that? The What Did You Play This Week podcast yes, thing. Yes, yes. Goodness. Mm-hmm, yeah. He was gracious enough to get on our podcast, which is really good. And then we have another local guy. Get this. His podcast is Spaghetti and Meeples. Nice, nice. So he's I, on I can there. appreciate a good pun. I can appreciate a good <laughs> pun. That's good. Yeah. That's good. And I think that's – and then we have some other people. We have like a, a blog post, and every now and then they'll put up articles and stuff. It's just getting off the ground. It's just a fun place to hang out. Well, thanks for letting us know about that. It sounds like there's some uh, fun content out there for people to check out. So uh, go and check it out. Uh, I think that sounds like a lot of fun. And I'd already heard the uh, What Did You Play This Week podcast thing um, a couple – I'd listened to a few episodes of that as well. So I'm, I'm familiar with that one. So looking forward to checking out more from you guys. All right. So uh, we obviously share an affinity for uh, you know games that stand the test of time. Um, and this one has not been around super long, uh, but this is a game that I've played quite a few times myself um, and have found really kind of interesting and fascinating. It's, it's kind of compelling. It draws you in, I would say. Um, and a lot of it has to do with what Carissa was talking about, uh, you know, the sort of the, the diplomacy aspects of it. And then, of course, the clever card play that you were talking about, TC, when you've got that hand of cards. Uh, before we go any further, would you mind maybe kind of just sort of giving a brief overview for people who might not have had a chance to play the game uh, about sort of how the game is played, like the, the basic structure of it? Oh, goodness, I'm always so really good at this. <laughs> so anyway, Churchill, what you're doing is you're representing one of the three major powers, allied powers, in World War II. You have the Soviets, you have the Americans, and you have the British. What you are doing is you're sitting around a conference table together, and you have these cards, and your cards are representing your cabinet, uh, the, the people in your cabinet. And each of these cards has a face value on it that can influence a issue. Now, there are conference issues that are going to be put on the table, and essentially they're going to come out during the, um, there's like an agenda phase, that person's going to dictate the first one, and then everybody else is going to pit two others, so you'll at any possible time have a total of two, four, seven, possibly more, depending on the conference card and what that says. Right. Then you're going to be playing cards one at a time, and pulling these issues towards you. Now, if the issue goes towards your track and it ends on your track, at the end of the conference you win it, you can pull it all the way up to lock it down. But if you don't lock it down, someone else can play it and pull it away, and which is the, where the debate happens. So you can advance an issue and someone can throw a card down and say, no, that's not happening. We're pulling it this way. Which, by the way, is really important if you're the Soviets because they get that net bonus. Yes, yeah. They're very good at that. <laughs> So you go through that whole phase. Then you go to the um, a decision segment where you figure out who won the issues, what's going to be happening, where to put out your resources. Oh, what's that called? Anyway, they're, they're resource chits. That's going to affect the board. Production. Uh, production. Yeah, it's production. Thank you. Production. Yeah. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you. I got the rule book here. <laughs> 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 Once that's all settled, 
the access powers are going to activate, and the access powers have an AI associated with them. So the Germans are going to do a set routine, then the Japanese are going to do a set routine. And this is when you're moved over to the, the map. Right, right. So you've moved from the conference table to the big board in the middle of the room where all the ships and stuff are positioned. That's how we like to picture it is, you know, you've got all the women around pushing things with a long pole. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Pushing around the little models. Yeah. You always wanted to know who made those, you know, like whose job was that? You know, there's like some dude named Chuck who's like off in a little room and he's like whittling a battleship. And they're like, no, that one was sunk, man. We need, you know, I need a tank. Okay, I got it. You know, he just spent all those hours and he just snaps it into in frustration. (laughs) So, but when you move these fronts, you're going to be rolling a 10 sided die and you have to overcome the cubes, which are going to be a modifier against, and you have to roll that number or less. But if you manage to put your offensive directives out there and push that up high enough, you can actually do a breakthrough and move twice if right. you're on land. And then that with the ultimate goal of pushing both fronts into each territory, the Germany or into Japan, and ending the game with the Axis surrendering. Yeah, that's absolutely uh, you know difficult to achieve, but it's obviously the main goal, right? Which is you got to get them to surrender. Um, and it's not enough to have the one, you know, you have to have both of them surrender in order for it to be an ultimate allied victory. However, one of the things that I found interesting, TC, was this notion of the game can end because there is a fixed length to the game. And if it doesn't end in this sort of sudden death victory sort of situation, then you actually are going to have to look at the sort of imagined reality of, well, what if Germany never surrendered? Or if Germany surrendered, what if... Uh, Japan never surrendered, you know, um, and you can almost see, you know, the producers of the man in the high tower thinking about this, um, mm-hmm. you know, based on uh, what was that Philip K. Dick's book, I think. Right. Yeah. So yeah. We, we've got this whole notion of, OK, uh, now we're into uncharted territory. Um, both Axis powers did not surrender. And now you have to do this very interesting kind of victory determination. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that was one of the things that I found fascinating as well. Yeah, that was really interesting. The first time we played Churchill, we played it like a Euro game where we're just pushing as far ahead as we can to get as many victory points individually as we can. And when we did that, obviously someone, one of the powers just shot way out ahead. And he was looking at the board going, look, I have no interest in getting Germany or Japan to surrender because I'm ahead in victory points. So good luck, guys. You're on your own. And when that happens, it triggers a victory condition where you have to roll dice to modify your score. And so the person in first place rolls a die and subtracts that amount. The person in second place rolls a die and subtracts half that amount. And the lucky person who's in last place gets to roll a die and add that amount. And we hit that twice when we played that game the first time. Yeah, that's pretty interesting because, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who vented quite a lot of nerd rage over that. (laughs) Um, Yes. And I, I kind of like found it, I kind of found it like really interesting because it was it's artificial to be sure. Like it, it is a completely artificial system. But I found it to be such a horrible, threatening thing that hangs over you in this game that it actually encourages grudging cooperation, which is exactly how I imagined it was <laughs> in the real world based on everything I've read, you know? These guys were not all, you know, chummy, chummy, like let's all hang out and have a drink together after we, you know, decide what we're going to do. 
Yeah, there was so much distrust. There was so much suspicion. There was uh, real concerns about what was going to happen even if the Axis were defeated. And so there was this kind of like grudging cooperation and there was a lot of complaining, especially on Stalin's part. Uh, and, and in some cases you can say rightfully so. Um, you know, they're kind of taking the brunt of, uh, you know, the, the Axis forces at that point. Uh, you know, he's begging for help. And so the game kind of simulates that, I feel, with that rule. Because as you said, if you game the system, and just say, well, you know what? I don't care. I, I, I'm in the lead. I'm just going to grab a bunch more points. I'm going to win a bunch of conferences and the heck with you all. Well, then you will kind of be punished. Like history is going to look back on you and say, you really didn't do your part. You abandoned these other two who were trying to fight the good fight. And so therefore you get slapped. And I kind of like that. I, I don't know. Where do you two fall on that? Uh, Carissa, we'll start with you. Do you enjoy that that aspect of the game, or did you find it too artificial? What were your thoughts? You know, I again, at first, it did have an art, artificial feel to it. Um, it was a little confusing for me to wrap my brain around the first time. Um, but when I stepped back and started thinking about not just the gameplay, but at, actually what we're simulating i had this similar response of you know yeah that's great you charged ahead and you got the most victory points but we didn't stop what we set out to defeat and so there needs to be repercussions and you need to learn how to play the game in the system but also in such a way that you are meeting the conditions that would be a victory, the victory conditions. And I think if you just try to charge ahead and do it as a Euro, you're losing a lot of the aspects and subtlety of the game itself. And uh, you're, you're missing out on what is a, a fascinating um, approach to to the debate and then working the the side of the war, but then just historically, it's like you know, <laughs> okay, Russia won, Germany's still out there, Japan's really mad. This is bad. This is <laughs> yeah, very yeah. very bad. <laughs> right. So yeah, it's you know, I I'm not sure that there would have been a better way to come about that. Um, I think it I think it works, and having gone through several different plays of this um it has gotten to the point where it's like gosh i really i don't want that win condition to come up i I don't want that condition to come up so what can i do on my end to help push so it doesn't and how can i swing these agendas and how can i get you know can i convince the other players to work together as an ally or can i gang up with somebody to force the other player to fall in line and that, I think, brings up a little bit more of the spirit of the, of the era uh, as well around the table. You do kind of feel like, you know, we're cooperating, but I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, TC, where do you fall on this? Okay, well, the, one of the reasons I love this game is it's hugely counterintuitive to play. So, for example, um, you, in order, if someone is in that position is going – so that no other access power is going to win, and you see it, there are ways to counter that. 
And the easiest way I experienced, because we had a person playing the Americas, playing Roosevelt, and he was just going bananas. He was putting his political, he was putting his clandestine markers out there. He was hugely ahead, and he didn't want any of his fronts to move. He wanted to freeze the board as it was. So even as far as ahead he was, even if you have to roll that die and do a minus six at the worst, he still was going the game. Me and British, I was Britain. Yeah, so I was Britain, and the other player was the Soviets. We looked at you and said, look, we've got to get America into the fight and get him to push into those territories. Now, a few things, one of the things that first-time players don't realize is those fronts, anyone can move them. Even if it's a Russian front and you're the American player, you can put directive offensives on there and push them up as far as you want. So we put both directive offensive out there, so America was spending four resources to the war whether he wanted to or not exactly i didn't care yeah. where he put them i just want them on the board we waited to see where he put them we put all of our directive influence straight into the war in the pacific and he pushed through into japan and into the game when he didn't want to <laughs> so in a two in a, and again you're talking about the hard three-player games this is a pretty interesting three-player game because if one person's breaking on ahead and is looking for that the other two players can get around it and gang up if they can work together again if <laughs> and get that person so they we win the war and one of the other victory conditions is if the first player is more than 15 points ahead of the last player they're mm-hmm. out they're done the second player wins and right, in, right. in the playing i did it came between me those two guys and the other guy won by three points because i didn't put enough clandestine markers out there to counter his oh geez yeah yeah and you know those clandestine markers and and those kind of the 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 other part of the game that i found really fascinating was that whole sort of nod towards setting up for the cold war mm-hmm. you know with your your clandestine markers and and you know you're trying to put that influence in those regions you know and it's like okay sooner or later this is going to end And there's a a lot of interesting strategic choices in that game as you try to jockey for position, because, of course, you get points for that at the end, um, of trying to kind of figure out how can I best position myself so that I have a lot of influence here um, in the in the post-World War II world, you know, Um, and I really kind of feel like it's almost like a prequel to Twilight Struggle, you know, that that sort of seeding of the board and it's it's almost I'm not going to say it's an afterthought because it's definitely it's important if you want to play the game well, but it doesn't feel like it should be like it feels like all of your efforts should be on that conference table and on moving those fronts, you know, and then, oh, by the way, you've also got these lovely colored discs that you can put out. Well, those lovely colored discs are actually quite important. And not only are they important in game terms, but you can kind of see the, post, the post-war the post world kind of taking shape. And I really like that aspect of the game. Uh, what did you guys think about that part of the game, that system? Uh, I guess I should apologize because I didn't address that part of the system when I gave the <laughs> overview. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Like I said, it's a subtle part of it. It's not, it's not really the – it doesn't – as you said, you characterize the game as counterintuitive, right, TC? That's like, correct. It, it, it doesn't – there's things that you have to do that 
seem really important but aren't. And then there are things that really don't seem all that big of a deal but are. And, and that's kind of one of the things that I think gives you that feeling of it's a little counterintuitive. Like you have to play it a few times before you even, even can wrap your mind around it completely. So, yeah, I mean, no apologies necessary, obviously, <laughs> because, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a subtle kind of part of the game that I remember the first time I played um, with one of my friends, he was just like, I don't see the point in these. And I'm like, well, they're worth points at the end. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, well, yeah, but what does it matter if, you know, the victory condition is, you know, uh, so-and-so, you know, gets 15 points ahead of us, you know, then I'm like, well, that's true. But, you know, you got to figure out how to stop that from happening while kind of behind the scenes, dare I say clandestinely, mm-hmm. you're trying to kind of work back channels and set yourself up so that when all this is done, hey, guess what? I'm still over here. And so it is. It's like a subtle part of the game that doesn't immediately seem very important, but it ends up being quite important in many of the games that I played. What, what do you all think about that whole system? I think it's an added balance to the game because it addresses just that that point. You know, you might have somebody who's who's reaping in the victory points from the board itself, uh, but if they're not working the global issue or the clandestine markers, um, somebody else can come in with that and balance out those VPs towards the end. Um, and so I really saw it as an added balance, um, as well as, as you said, thematic. Um, but yeah, those clandestine markers and the global issue, which, you know, I think that tends to get forgotten too. Absolutely. And we didn't really work either of those very well or with much uh, expertise at all until TC and I played a two-player game and botted um, Churchill. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm, we, we mm-hmm. played Churchill as the bot and that opened our eyes to one of the ways that you play the game, specifically how you can play Churchill himself, because he's all about the global issue yep. and getting that on the board. And so then we saw how that could work and suddenly it made sense. Um, not only is this a balancing feature between all the players, but it makes sense for um, the war itself, you know, because England's going into this. They've been a world power. They've been an empire. It's been in decline. Um, they're trying to pick up those pieces again. And, uh, yeah, and then, you know, of course, the Soviets aren't going to want that to happen. <laughs> exactly. And America is now suddenly out of their isolationism and in the world uh, and um, has a chance um, to expand too. So thematically it worked very well. And then balancing the players, I think it worked too. But it it is definitely one aspect of the game that I think takes a few game plays to wrap your head around. Would you agree with that, TC? Yeah, the uh, that whole operation of the game, which is called the um, putting out your clandestine political markers, all that is hugely dependent on who wins the global issue and how they set that global issue on their side of the table. Because when you first play, you want to put stuff in Europe. You can't do it until you start moving win the global issue and move that marker either one side or the other. And then if you're – I think that's really, really good. And again, it took us a while to figure that out because we're looking at the board, trying to figure it out, going, okay – 
Now, do I want to put a lot of these out? Do I want to get that far ahead? Do I want to pull myself back? But more importantly, I don't think what either of you described is like you can use your clandestine and political influence to knock other people out one for one. So right. if you see someone ahead, you can get all those you know, get your Pullman issues, cash them out, which is also interesting because when you take a Pullman issue, you're saying, hey, guess what, guys? I am not – I'm contributing nothing to the war. This is all about me. <laughs> so screw you guys. I'm going to influence people on the map. So you're spending your own influence to be able to do that, and you can either do it to either increase or, more importantly, decrease other people's influence in those regions. Yeah, one of the things uh, uh, that I really – kind of spurred my memory when I was listening to uh, you talk about it, Carissa, was when I played Churchill the one time, I think I'm not looking at the board, but one of those global issues, it basically locks down a portion of the board in, in uh, uh, the Pacific, I believe it is. Um, yes. And, and no one else can kind of place influence there. And so, I mean, that was huge for me playing Churchill, trying to keep that marker on that side um, from those global uh, sort of issues that were being debated. Uh, there's there's like a, a little pin marker. And for each of the sort of three sides, there's two positions where it can kind of be. And uh, each of those positions where it can slide is going to give a benefit to one of the players or another player. And so it's like a tug of war within the tug of war. It's like a secondary sort of little system uh, that has more lasting effects than, you know, the, the normal issues as they're resolved at the conferences each round. They're going to be resolved in that round, whereas this thing kind of stays. And you have to actually uh, bring those global issues back and try to pull it out of its position. So as Churchill, when I saw, you know, I think it was my third play, I'm like, wait a minute, are you telling me I can lock down this whole section of the board? I was like, this is awesome. And so that was like my entire strategy was helping with the war effort, but locking, like, I was just, anybody that tried to get in there, I like slapped them on the hand. I'm like, no, it's mine. It's like, just imagine Churchill. It's like, get out, you know? He's like the grumpy old man, you know, get off my lawn, you know? This is, this is my lawn over here. You're not allowed. Go away. To, dang it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So I think I, it tends to be Churchill that makes that first global move too, because the global starts out neutral. So right. it's not towards any one side. But as soon as that moves off neutrality, it never goes back. It's on one side or the other. And it's it's always, you know, I, I find it interesting to wait and see who's going to be the first one to bring that global out. Or is it going to be the card that brings it out? Um, because I think there's one that puts it on the table. Yeah, one of the conference agendas oh, yeah, is bring yeah. it out. And so usually once that hits, then people – because additionally, aside from giving you potential benefits on the board, it's like five victory points at the end of the game, isn't it? Yes, it yeah, is. Course, like, <laughs> plus, if you win the conference, you get three. Unless you're the Soviets, then you win five for every conference you win. Right, right. right. Which is, you know, again, it's another subtlety to the game that I think you, you very aptly described because, you know, you're, you're focusing all of your attention on these issues – and then what ends up happening is once those global issues come into play, it kind of diverts your attention. Now it's like, all right, the influence that I do have uh, based on my staff and the cards that are in my hand, now I, now I really have to kind of think about how am I going to spread these around because now I not only have to worry about these, these main issues that are coming up at the conference, but I also have to worry about the global issues because 
at some point I have to make a move. I can't let Churchill have that. Or, you know, you, you also have the same thing happen, I think, a lot with the nuclear issue, you know, with, with uh, the development of, of the bomb. And, you know, the Soviet player is trying to kind of piggyback on, uh, you know, the uh, Americans' development of that. And, and so there's this, this other kind of secondary. As soon as that, that A-bomb kind of comes in as an issue, then it's like everybody kind of sits back and say, like, all right, here we go. Now we're going to do this again, you know. And there, so there are these certain issues that pop out that really are kind of um, important, but they can also be very distracting. Because meanwhile, another player is just pulling all production to their side. <laughs> and and while you two are sitting there, you know, uh, going back and forth over the Manhattan Project, well, guess what? You know, England's got all this production now, and they're going <laughs> to splash that. You know, so there's so many different things that can happen. And what I really appreciate about the game myself is that it is definitely half a negotiation game. But you don't have to really verbally negotiate if you don't want to. The cards will do it for you. And so what I find is that people who shy away from games where you have to kind of talk a lot, they're not real social in that way. They don't like to be kind of argumentative or aggressive and talking and negotiating. They just let the cards do the talking. And so it's a way to get people who normally wouldn't be into that kind of game into that kind of game. And that's something else that I appreciated about it as well. Um, now, you know, before this sounds too much like a love fest, <laughs> let's, uh, let's take a little bit of a look at some of the, the problems that people have had with the game. So it's going to be like the Festivus airing of the grievances. Okay. Let them come. Um, that's right. I got a lot of problems with you people. I think this is the <laughs> second time in like two months that I've referenced Festivus. So I don't know <laughs> why, but anyway, all right. Um, there are those who have kind of stated, this is the charge that's been leveled at the game. It's kind of a negotiation game. It's kind of a war game because it doesn't really do either full on. It's neither. It fails at both. What would you say to that kind of charge? Because I've heard that. I've heard that a lot in forums of people saying, well, it really isn't enough of either. And so it doesn't work. Okay, I'll go first on this one. So the charge was it's not a war game or it's not a, a negotiation game. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. Like it's it's not really a pure war game. I mean, well, you know, how is this a war game? You're just advancing a marker on a track. That's like that's that's not a war game. That that's just that doesn't show anything. And you know, other people are like, you know, these issues are just abstracted. I play a card and I move a I move a, a chit and it ends on my side. Whoop de doo. Like you just you just hear people who kind of don't feel that either of the game systems are what they kind of were expecting or wanting, and so therefore they kind of feel that the whole thing doesn't work. So I was kind of curious what you would think about that. Okay. Here's what I would say. I would say if you buy this game and you're picking up to buy it, read the back. On the back of the box, it specifically says Churchill is not a war game. And I would contend (laughs) Churchill is a beast of its own creation. It's not a negotiation game, and it's not a war game. What it's doing is it's simulating those. It's highly abstracting those to the point of making it an enjoyable game and reflecting history. So if you want a war game, heck, you know, we, there are a ton of other GMT games I could point to. If you want a war game where you have chits and rolls and defense and offense, and if you want a negotiation game, I've got Cosmic Encounter. Well, let's bring that out, right? Okay. <laughs> 
if you okay. want if you want to play a historical game that incorporates incorporates mechanisms that are highly thematic to the game I would recommend Churchill and I wouldn't recommend to anybody because it as I have played it and I played with other people I have come to the conclusion that it is a very counterintuitive game. In order to play Churchill correctly and to play it well, you have got to break the way you normally play other uh, board games. So what would you say, Carissa? Would you agree with that assessment? Or is there anything in the game that kind of bothers you or that doesn't kind of go far enough for you? You know, um, I like what T- and TC's been describing the game this way for a while now, that he, he nails it with that. It's an abstracted view um, of this time period, and it pulls away um, the, on the war game aspects, and it takes a different approach to the negotiation table to um, make it work. Um, as far as either one of those, taking them out individually, um, I'm one of those people who does not enjoy the verbal debates and <laughs> verbal negotiations. You know, we, we like to sit and, and play Here I Stand and Virgin Queen. And, and those, those moments of, you know, being able to make alliances and go out of the room and, and converse, I, that is my least favorite aspect. And so I enjoy being able to, you know, move, um, choose the agendas, use the cards, make my moves on the board and show this is what I'm doing through that aspect. So that worked for me. Um, the war game, the war game aspect of it took me um, a couple more times to except I guess I will say simply because it it is very, I don't want to say abbreviated because it's not, it's the entire war on a map. Um, I think it's because it's so um, pulled back from it that you're not doing the individual battles necessarily, but you are hitting the key battles. And so that is, it is a different way of approaching a war game and when you're used to doing the individual battles and the one-on-one face-offs and not just a huge, massive army representation push, I think it did take me a little bit longer uh, to see how that works and how it incorporates with the negotiation table. Um, and once I, I realized that it wasn't... I didn't see it as a problem with the game, um, because I tend not to approach games that way, that, oh, this isn't working, so it's got to be the game. Something's wrong or something's missing. I tend to look and say, okay, what am I not getting out of this? And rethink, is it my strategy? Am I just missing some key parts here? And once I realized how it was acting as a war game, it, it just clicked for me. Um, but I think that's one of the things I really like about this game, is it challenge my preconceptions of what a war game and what a negotiation game were. Yeah, I think that's very well put. Um, you know, it is definitely a game that challenges a lot of assumptions. Um, and, and I, I kind of come down with you a, a little bit. Actually, I come down with both of you because I didn't go into it thinking it was a war game. So I think a lot of any, the way any game is received has a lot to do with what people's expectations were. Mm-hmm. And I think that if people are expecting one thing, and like 
here's a perfect example. Um, Kingdom Builder, okay? You know, this is Donald X. Vaccarino. This is the dude who did Dominion. And he's coming out with a new game called Kingdom Builder. And there's a dude on a horse, I think, right? And this this beautiful painted, like, okay, it's like this, this kingdom. And that dude's probably going to go out and he's going to found this great land. It's going to be amazing. And then you open up that box and you, you look at the components, you look at how the game's played, and you're like, what is this? Like, that was kind of, like, my reaction was just like, I'm dropping rows of houses, like like uh, somebody leaving a trail of breadcrumbs, or like, like uh, it's like bird droppings. Like, what is this? Like, I just, I totally hated it. I despised it. And yet there were other friends of mine whose opinions that I really, really respect, um, who told me that they absolutely love the game. And when I when they question me about why I hate it, and when I ask them why they love it, one of the central things that kind of popped up was this notion of they had done a lot more reading than I had. I saw Donald Vaccarino. I thought, I love Dominion. This is going to be great. And I just ordered it. And then I get this game that totally did not meet my expectations. And so I was kind of predisposed not to like it, whereas you know, the person who took the time to read the back of the box or to read the forums about what Kingdom Builder was going to be or, you know, read that, you know, Churchill was going to try to look at things in a different way probably would not have that expectation. It's very rare when someone says to you, now, look, I want you to understand, you're not going to get a cheeseburger, okay? (laughs) You're going to get something tasty, but it's not a cheeseburger. And then, like, the waiter comes, he's like, this is a cheeseburger. You told me I wasn't going to get a cheeseburger. Like it, it never happens. Like you're going to get something else. Right. And so understanding what you're not going to get, I think is one of the things that is kind of important when you're judging a game. And I, I don't know that this is a fact, but I have a feeling that there's a lot of people who saw the game, saw the subject matter, saw the designer and just kind of like, I'm going to P 500 that. And mm-hmm. I, you know, this, this game looks, you know, looks cool. And then when they got it, it just wasn't what they were expecting. It wasn't what they were looking for. So I kind of agree with you that, like, if you had read about the game beforehand a little bit, you probably should have known this was not going to be a standard war game. So I agree with you there, TC. Now, the the one point of divergence that I have with you, Carissa, is, like, after playing the game, I really kind of, like, if you ask me my opinion about this, I kind of view the game as 75% that table. And 25% the map. I really kind of feel that the map is a manifestation of the consequences of the table. Like everything in that game to me is really about that table Mm -hmm. and about the the card play, the negotiations, the issues that are brought out and the, the timing and the, the strategy that's involved with trying to, torque those things in your favor when you have two other people pulling at you in and wanting opposite things from you. And then the map, I I wasn't expecting a war game. I was really expecting just like, okay, so how does all, what do all of these decisions at this table mean over here? And over there, um, it, it's kind of like, this is going to be a weird analogy, but you brought up a uh, um, cosmic encounter. So I can do this. Um, <laughs> if you've ever played like space alert, like, Space Alert is a game, it's a real-time game, and you play frantically for 10 minutes. 
And then after playing for 10 minutes, making every decision that you have to make, you're basically programming your moves and everybody is trying to do the same thing at once. There's a pressure on you from the game. There's a soundtrack. Things happen to you. And then after that 10 minutes, everybody sits back and it's like you're watching a slow motion instant replay of what you just did. The resolution phase is kind of like, so let's see what actually happened. Like, did, did everybody really pull it off or did you not? And I kind of view Churchill in the same way. It's like, okay, all this stuff just happened at this conference. So let's kind of sit back and watch how that plays out over here. And so I wasn't really expecting any kind of a war game feel to it. I was kind of looking at that map as, huh, look at that. So taking all that production from here and putting it here, wow, look at what that did. Or, you know, they got themselves all geared up, but they didn't have the Navy that they needed to, to launch that amphibious landing. Ah, you know, look at that. You know, you should have seen that coming. And it kind of like is just a, it's playing out the decisions that I already made. And that's the other kind of criticism I heard of the game, which is that the, the other side of the table, the other side of, of the board, the map part kind of runs itself. And I kind of get that, but it doesn't, you know, I get it, but I don't get it. Like the resolution of the map is really just trying to move a marker and rolling some dice and, and reading like, where do you put the cubes for the Germans and where do you put them for the Japanese? So I get people being dissatisfied with that, but I think it's because of a fundamental misunderstanding of what's going on on that side of the board. That's not a second game. It's a continuation, it's a reflection of what happened on this half of the board, which is where I kind of think 75% of the game is played. Um, do you think I'm off base on that, or is there something to that? What would you say? I, I think you, I can see that viewpoint. I, I take it as the reverse. I'm looking oh, at the really? map first. Oh, cool. Because right. what I do at the table is reflected on where the map stands at the time I go to the table. So I'm trying to look ahead and see, okay, where do I need to focus? Where does my influence need to go? What are the agendas that I need to work on to make happen what I would like to see happen in the course of the war? Because if I play it the other direction, I don't, have as mu- I don't feel like I am taking as much control over my strategy. But if I'm looking at that map first and seeing... Where do the where does the front need to be focused? You know, how quickly do we need to to get the A bomb going? When do I need to bring out the global issues? Um, do I need to see about a leadership change in one of the in one of the fronts? Um, that's going to help. That's going to dictate the strategies that I bring to the conference table. So I do the reverse. Well, for myself. I am a scientist by nature, and I'm also – I tend to be a reductionalist. So when people look at that and go, what's this whole side of the map? I tell them, look, this side of the map is a gigantic interactive scoreboard. <laughs> <laughs> Every score you make in this game on that table is going to be reflected on here. And one of the critiques I've heard of this game is that you just play this game and you score a whole bunch of points. That's not necessarily the case because once you understand how this map works – and where you can score and how you can score, 
is going to determine how you play your cards. So for me, the map side is the scoreboard and something I keep an eye on and know where I'm at score point wise, whether I'm too far ahead, whether someone else is too far ahead. And like Carissa says, that determines my card play during the conference table. Well, thank you both for uh, sharing that point of view because uh, honestly, it's just not the way I approach the game. So, but I can. So that probably means I'm not good. But uh, I, I have I, I have won I think once or twice. So I I, I don't know maybe uh, maybe we're all just terrible. But no, I totally get what you're saying. Um, and and I see that you can really look at the game in that way. Um, I looked at it so much more about the issues and the points and trying to kind of keep my, you know, it's like keep myself with the pack, but slightly ahead. Like my goal is always just to be, you know, a little bit ahead, but not so far ahead that I'm going to end the game. Um, Not so far on my own that uh, the war is going to go badly. And so, I kind of approached it more from that angle, which is, I guess, why I described it the way I did and you described it the way you did. So uh, I think, you know, the things that you're talking about certainly are, are very valid, that that notion of, you know, how far does this front have to go and how many points is going to be scored um, if, you know, the front marker advances to here and the game ends. And, uh, you know, so all of those things are, are incredibly true. Um, but it just goes to show that you can kind of like look at this game through many different lenses. And that's one of the things that I think I appreciate about it. So um, thanks for sharing that perspective. Um, so we all agree that, you know, the game is interesting. It's a, a different take on things. It is something that requires some repeated play to even wrap your mind around. And you two just gave me you know, something different to think about, like refocusing my attention more on that map. Um, Is there anything about the game that you don't like or that you think could have been done differently or that you would have liked to have seen done differently? The directed offensives, the cubes, and how you calculate what you need to roll, it takes me way too long to work that out each time I sit down to the game. I don't know what it is about it, but how those cubes are representing what number of troops, because it's not a one-to-one. Right. Um, that just is a, and it's, I, I think it's probably just me, <laughs> but that just bothers me. And it gets in my way sometimes um, in calculating what I need to, to put out to counter um, the German um, usually. Um, in, in fighting, you know, facing their friend. Right, right. I don't know what it is about that. Just, <laughs> you always ask about I it. I always do, don't I? And and TC can see me getting like, grrr. It's like, it's okay. Yep, Just yep. look at this. And he spells it out again. It's like, okay. And I don't consider myself an unintelligent person. Right, right. But it's just something about that mechanic just doesn't gel in my head. Um, yeah. So that's an aspect. Again, I you know it's probably just me, but it does get in my way. I think every time I play it, so I just have to keep it in mind that okay, just refresh yourself on the rules with it. Don't assume you know it, and go from there. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you. That's why I'm kind of chuckling here in the background. It's not just you. 
It, you know, <laughs> it's like I have to pull out that there's that one page in the rule book, and I think it even split. I think it might split between the bottom of one page and the top of another. It's like every single time. It's like this whole series of if-then statements, mm-hmm. and I have to read through it. And figure out, okay, where where does this go? What's the strength of this? Where is this? And no, it's it's very, very obtuse. And I think it's one of the things about the game that does not feel very um, elegant or streamlined. Like so much of the rest of the game is relatively simple. You know, you, you play a card, it's got a value, you pull a marker. This card is better at pulling this marker than it is at pulling that marker, you know? Uh, pull a marker all the way to your chair and you sit on it. Nobody can take it from you. Like it's all, it's all pretty straightforward, but yeah, you're right. When you get to that, that part of the game where I have to sit there and, and just every single time reread, it's like what, a paragraph and a half. If that, Mm -hmm. I just have to sit there and reread it over and over. And I, like you, I sit there, I think to myself, I'm not an unintelligent person, but <laughs> why can't I remember this? And then I start to read it, and I'm like, oh, well, that's why, because it's mm-hmm. Byzantine. Like, it's just, it's really convoluted and weird, and I think it's necessary is the problem. Like, I I think if it wasn't there, you'd have to come up with something even more obtrusive yeah. and even more kind of sticking out. And so I don't necessarily know that it's bad, but I know that it, it's always a little bit of a frustration for me. So it's not just you. Um, what about you, TC? Is there anything that, that maybe rubs you the wrong way? I think there are maybe three things. And they mainly Whoa, all have three, to do. Three? Three? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay, one three. of them is, have you ever put a blue clandestine marker on the green square? Yes. <laughs> what color is it? It's not blue anymore. I don't you know how many know. times I have to pick up those darn clandestine markers to see what color they really are because they're clear? They're that, that yeah, clear blue. Yeah. So that's frustrating. Another thing that was frustrating for me is when I got this game, I looked at the box. It listed the complexity at two. <laughs> Give me a break. If this is your first GMT game and you're not used to those type of rule books, I mean, we were just fortunate that we play a lot of GMT games, so working through the rules wasn't difficult. But, man, I can see someone looking at it going, oh, this is an overly complicated game. It's just a two. And opening it up and going, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> Good grief. And the last thing for me is it's one it's a game where you cannot let your opinion of the game go on a first play. Cuz being a first time player, even if you're playing by yourself and even especially if you're playing against people who know how to play, you are going to get destroyed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it definitely is not newbie friendly. I I would agree with that a, a 100% because of all the things that both of you have been talking about, which is the subtleties of the game and the sort of um, we keep using the word counterintuitive, but it, it's it's almost um, counterintuitive. I don't I don't know that I'm that I'm loving that word because it, it almost makes it seem like it's a flaw. Mm-hmm. It, counterintuitive, which, I think, is a word that usually infers that something is wrong, but I don't think that's what any of us mean. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what what I think we're we're talking about is is a game that is. Um, Oh boy, what uh, it's it's just a little bit um, left to center, you know. It it doesn't really come at you the way you expect it to, and so it's indirect. Maybe how about indirect? Does that work for you? Yeah, what I mean by counterintuitive is like in most games you play, you see a victory point track. You just want to march up up that thing as fast as you possibly can, quicker than anybody else to win the game. Right, and that is not the case with this game at all. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I would argue that it's it's not just the victory point thing. There's just so many parts of the game. Yes. Like, you know, we talked about the the political kind of markers and clandestine markers and uh, all that influence that part. The part about where does the front end to the game and who's going to win from you know who's going to kind of come out on top based on that. And um, th- there's just so many things that are sort of um, you know I think subtle is actually probably the word we've used the most. Uh, that, that I agree with you uh, 100%. You can't really judge the game based on on one play, and you really need to play it a few times with the same people. And and that's another thing that I think you just highlighted there, TC, which is if you're always teaching it to the third person or the second and third person, you're never really going to have the chance to see the game at its full potential. To me, you know, the times that I've been able to play it with the same people – those games are like nail biters. They're very tense. They're very, um, uh, they're a little cutthroat. Um, people kind of bide their time. Like you were talking about Carissa, like when is that issues marker going to start to move the global? Um, and, and, and it, it's just, it's a quiet game almost at that point when you're playing with people who really know it, because all of these little subtleties that we're talking about in these interactions you start to get a feel for, and then it just gets real serious real fast. So <laughs> that's kind of the way I look at it. Um, that being said, though, what would you say about sort of the enjoyment factor of the game? Do you find this game to be uh, on the heavy side, the brain burn side? Um, do you do you you know where where, where would you rank it there? I think um, you know I would compare this with with other GMT games simply because of the style, the rule book and how you go at it. And the one thing that struck me is when we first started looking at it and the board and all the different shits, and it was like, wow, how are we ever going to figure this out? And then we went through a couple of practice rounds. It's like, wait a minute, this, this isn't that bad. You know, it, it, it clicks very quickly. And there's a few things we had to, you know, keep on top of looking up, but the learning curve for it for me was, was comparatively low considering other games out of the company. Um, and I think the game rewards gameplay. The more times you play it, I think the more you grasp, you have three different factions to choose from to, to play, and they each have different uh, strategies that come with them. And, and so it, it really does re- reward multiple gameplays, um, depending on who you are playing with. Right, but I right. think if you, you're all about the same level of gamer, um, it, it can be, uh, it's, it's, it's been a positive experience for me for the most part. And where would you fall on this TC? Where, you know, where is the fun factor in this one for you? Well, okay, let's see here. Um, as far as the weight of the game, that's a real interesting question because I've been uh, debating what actually a definition of weight is. So we won't go there. When I rate this game. I use it on a commitment factor. How? So this game requires a really heavy commitment. You're going to have to play it. You're going to have to understand it. You're going to have to get a few games in and playing it with the same people to really get an understanding of it, to get the nuances of it, and to play it effectively. I'm at a point where if I'm taking this to a game night and have new people wanting to play it, I'll just set the three new people up and I will just teach the game. Because if I sit down with new people, it's really unfair because I know how the game works and how to beat them. That's an excellent point. And I also want to just warn you in advance that I may end up stealing your commitment phrase there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just just because – no, just because it's such a great way of describing – 
some of the games in the hobby that we all like. Um, you know, there are games, and I think you've really hit the nail on the head. Like, is Arkwright really that much more complicated than any other economic game, you know, heavy economic game that I played? No. But it requires a commitment, right? Just like you're talking about with this one. It requires a commitment to really kind of be able to, number one, judge the game, but number two, to really start to get that enjoyment, that fun factor out of it. Um, Otherwise, things can seem a little bit random, Um, especially in Churchill. It's easy to make a few mistakes here or there, and you're like, wow, you know, I mean, what happened? How did that happen? And so there can be a little bit of frustration with new players that'll creep in like that. So I love that idea of yours, this, this notion that um, it, it's not so much whether a game is heavy or light. It's what's going to be the commitment that you have to put into the game to get the most out of it. So uh, that's a great perspective. Thanks for sharing that. And if I do steal it, I will, of course, you know, give you full credit. Uh, I am a teacher, so I steal ideas all the time. Uh, teachers are, are fantastic pirates. Uh, but I do believe in uh, uh, giving credit where credit's due. So that's a really neat way of looking at that. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so I think we all kind of agree, uh, and I think it's pretty obvious, the three of us really like this game. And um, it's a game that has been a little bit polarizing. You know, there's people who are either really, really happy with it and excited about it, kind of like I am and I think the two of you are, or there's people who were kind of left cold or disappointed about it. Um, I remember being very surprised when Joel Eddy um, kind of, I don't know if he put it on his it. blacklist. Yeah, did he put it on his blacklist? And I was he like, did. dude, you have no idea what you're talking about. And, you know, like he and I got into this discussion about it. It was a good discussion. But he was just like, no, you know, Jeff, you're wrong. And I'm like, no, you're wrong. You know, <laughs> it was just the two of us were trying to get the other to see, you know, no, if you just look at it this way, it's, you know, it's wonderful. And he's like, but I don't look at it that way and I'm never going to. And so it doesn't work for me. And so, you know, there's, there's people whose opinions I respect that this game does not work for. Um, and, and I, I still can't quite logically figure it out other than the expectation thing I talked about, uh, or maybe the dissatisfaction with the whole sort of war portion of it on that side of the board. But, you know, at the same time, I don't really know how those elements could have been balanced any better than they were in this game. So this is why I think I'm a big fan of the game. Um, And it sounds like the two of you have really enjoyed it as well. So uh, I want to thank the both of you for uh, taking the time to talk to me uh, tonight about uh, Churchill. Because, I mean, this is a a really intriguing title. And I think uh, it's certainly one that I think everybody should try. Because as you said, Carissa, once you start, the learning curve really isn't all that bad. It's not something, if you have someone to teach it to you, like TC's talking about, like you go to a game night and he's the guy that teaches it, you're going to be up and running relatively quickly and you're going to have to be calling someone over to do the whole war calculation thing and (laughs) check on that. But other than that, it's pretty straightforward and it's the decisions that add the complexity, not the rules. And so Mm -hmm. that's really, to me, one of the hallmarks of a really good game when the complexity comes from the interaction of the players with the game and not the game rules and, you know, subsection D paragraph four line three, you know, so I really appreciate that about this. So thanks uh, to the two of you for joining me to discuss that. Thank you. Yes. It's been a great discussion. It's been nice to sit down and get kind of in depth with the game. Yeah, we haven't had a chance to actually review it yet, so it's nice to actually sit down and talk about it because I still don't know how quite I'm going to wrap my head around a review on this thing. (laughs) 
Well, you just did for an hour and eight minutes. So I think you did a great job, the both of you. So, uh, you know, before I let you go uh, and and let you off the hook here, um, I just wanted to kind of get your brief thoughts. You know, in in emailing back and forth before we uh, got the show off the ground here, uh, you two had just had the opportunity to try another GMT title. Boy, GMT is going to like us. Uh, Liberty or Death, and I had had the chance to just play it for the first, uh, well, I played it uh, two or three times now. Um, and I, you know, but I'm still really kind of new into this, uh, the latest in the coin series. Um, so I was just kind of curious, um, do you have any kind of general thoughts uh, about the game Liberty or Death? I'm totally in love with it, and I need to play it a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> It sounded like you leaned into the microphone when you said that. Like, like you got real close enough. For, like, she was like, "I'm totally in love with it." I'm like, "Okay, all right." She was like, right up on that mic there. Okay, so why do you totally love it? What What about it has really struck you? Because I, you know, I've played a lot of the coin games. Have Have you two played a lot of the coin games? TC's played more than I have. I I have some experience with them, um, more in Fire in the Lake uh, than any of the others. Um, I think. And that's one aspect of the game that frustrates me is some of the coin, <laughs> you know, with the cards and how you pick, you know, mm-hmm, you get mm-hmm. to go and then you get to go. And then I'm like, when can I go? <laughs> um, so that gets in my way a little bit, but that's me. Um, it's, it's the theme. It's, it's, I think, unlike the other coin games in that it's so relevant to our personal history as a nation, mm-hmm. um, to be able to, to reenact this war on a board and in this fashion. Um, I think what Harold did by looking at this war as a form of insurgency was, it was very mind opening to me. Um, how he, when he, you know, I read that, I was like, yeah, that, I mean, yes, yes, that makes total sense. Um, and so I like that aspect of it. Um, it's kind of a new, it feels like a new approach to a subject that could become very tired uh, as many times as it's approached in media and games and all of that. Um, right. It feels very refreshing. And uh, yeah, I just, we've only gotten a half game in and, and definitely need a lot, lot more. I want to play everybody. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing. I, I I really like what you said there that you know it it's looking at the American Revolution as an insurgency. And I remember when I saw that it was going to be a coin game, I was just immediately I was like, yes, you know, okay. So now we're really going to kind of explore this because you know a lot of people kind of forget that um, when you look at kind of the revolution and you look at that time period, you know, Britain was probably the most powerful nation on the planet with a very, very capable professional army. And, you know, no one really gave the colonials a chance against them because not only were they kind of outgunned, outtrained, um, you know, all of these resources that England had to bring to bear. And, you know, you have this continental army, which, you know, Washington is, is trying to kind of hold together uh, trying to get them trained, trying to get them into sort of a, a cohesive, coherent unit. And really so much of the early part of the war is Washington just refusing to be pinned down. You know, like he kind of learned that lesson 
uh, from his engagements in the French and Indian War. It's like, I'm not going to allow myself to be pinned down, you know? And, and so he was constantly moving on the move, not committing to the big engagement. And one of the reasons why he wasn't committing to the big engagement was for the very real concern that in a toe-to-toe standard battle, uh, the British would have chewed them up. And, and you know, it's one of those kinds of facts about history that I don't know that is often taught uh, here in the States that really it was a very desperate struggle. And it was a struggle that was using kind of tactics at the time that were considered very, very distasteful, like to the British. I mean, they thought, you know, the Americans are fighting without honor. They're ambushing. They're targeting officers. They're like doing all of these things that were no-nos at the time. And so, you know, when you look at the conflict through that lens, you can totally understand why definitely from the British point of view, this was a, this was an insurgency. This was an insurgency that they're going to try – to put down. They're, they're going to try to quell this in, you know, the way that any other insurgency that you look at in history. And so I agree with you. Like, it's a really fresh look and a fascinating look. And I also love the fact that it, it takes the, it, it tries to give a nod to, you know, France was not just there to, you know, thumb their nose at the British by helping the Americans. They had their own agenda, you know, and the Native Americans they kind of could tell which way the wind was blowing in their interactions with the colonists that things were not really going to go well for them if the patterns of behavior continued and how the colonials were treating and dealing with Native Americans and their issues. And so they're looking at the proclamation line. They're saying, hey, the British are the ones that made this deal. And, you know, maybe we can have we can carve out this space for ourselves if we support the British we get behind them. Uh, maybe we can finally just stop being pushed, you know, and, and have a spot of our own. And so I think it kind of this spreading of villages and the war parties and, and the territories over there, I think that does a, a nice job of kind of trying to show the Native American interests in that conflict as well. And so I like that it's, uh, once again, looking at multiple factions and not just it's the Brits versus the Americans. And, and that's what I think is one of the things that makes it a very rich game. Uh, TC, what's been your impression of it? Well, we were very fortunate that Harold Buchanan actually reached out to us and we got to talk to him about the game before it came out. And no, if, that's you look in the, if you look in the playbook and yeah. the playtesters, you will see Carissa's name. <laughs> In there. That's Krista Reed. So I'm personally very fond of it because it's a coin game with my wife's name in it. So I think that's just (laughs) pretty cool. Besides that, um, the board is beautiful. That is the prettiest board I've ever seen in a coin game. And I'm the old coin game war horse here. And I've been trying forever to get Chris to play one. Because ever since I played Andy in the Abyss, I was blown away with the system. It was amazing. It was different. It was doing something I've never seen. I was like, hey, you know, I'm not interested in the Colombian board. And I go, well, we got Cuba Libre. Oh, I'm interested in Cuba. We, get, we got um, a distant plane. It's Afghanistan. I'm not interested. But when the American Revolutionary War hit, she was, she was in. Was, whatever is coming out, we were going to get it P500 and get it on the right, table. Right. Uh, so the first play that was really cool. And uh, I can talk a little bit of the differences I like in the game. The thing I really enjoy is that battle sequence. Oh, I love that battle sequence where you're rolling dice and you're saying, this is how many casualties you have to absorb. Eat it. 
Yeah, nice, nice. I I love that. I wasn't quite sure how dice rolling was going to play into it and how much I enjoyed it, but I love that battle system. Um, the British movement really took me by surprise because oh, yeah. like, I can move from an adjacent colony to a city to another city to another adjacent colony. I'm going to go all the way over there. Oh, and by the way, they all don't have to be British controlled. They can be rebellion controlled. I'm just going to march all the way through here and just blow Washington out of the water. Mm-hmm. And it says Carissa's playing the British, and she's really good at playing <laughs> the British, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, nice, I, nice. I came in last. But you were doing really good. <laughs> I was, I, we didn't get to my moment. Yeah, we played a very <laughs> short game. But yeah, as far as coin games go, if the theme's really good. I So far, I like the differences in the gameplay. And I'm really curious, playing the French, how entering the war is going to affect the gameplay. Yeah, it's, it's definitely – I've only played a two-player so far. So – uh, you know, when you do the two-player game, it's kind of, uh, you know, the, the colonials and the French versus uh, the British and, and the natives. And so uh, I haven't had the chance to try just one of the factions like I did with Fire in the Lake, for example. Uh, you know, boy, you, you want something different. You know, play the VC in Fire in the Lake. That's Absolutely. A, that's a very different way to look at a game. Um, and so, yeah, I totally agree with you that uh, it, it's definitely something that is uh, fascinating. It's an interesting study. It's an interesting treatment. Uh, of the of the period and trying to sort of envision uh, how you know we talked about it with Churchill too. Uh, one of the two of you brought it up, I forget. But this this notion of hey, you can play Churchill as as the U.S. like four or five times in a row, and then if you switch gears and pick up Stalin, you're going to have a completely different experience, and you're gonna you're gonna have to learn how to play the game differently. And I kind of feel that's the same thing with the coin games, which is. I almost can never really be bored with them because every time I start to feel like, okay, I'm doing the same things I did, uh, you know, the, the last game or three games ago, I used this same strategy. I'm like, all right, well, it's time for me to change. And then I just pick another faction and then I get to explore that all over again. And as I'm playing that faction, one of my other friends is playing the faction I used to play, okay? And they're discovering new ideas and new strategies that I hadn't thought of. And I'm looking at them and learning. I'm like, huh, maybe I'll have to try that next time on them. And so there's this infinite kind of it, – it feels infinite. I don't know that it is, but it feels infinite to me sense of replayability of I'm going to be able to sit here and lifestyle this game if I want to. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, so uh, that's definitely one that uh, is on my radar for sure. So, well, I appreciate you two taking the time to uh, uh, talk a little bit about that. And Carissa, congratulations. Always nice when you're in the little blurb in the rule book. Um, (laughs) I'm in a few of those. I'm I was so touched. It was a it was a big surprise and and very it was very nice. It's awesome, isn't it? And it's one of the things I think about the hobby that. I don't know that everybody, especially people outside the hobby, uh, hobby that they appreciate, which is, you know, the designers of these games are just as passionate about us playing them as they are making them. And they're so nice. You know, I mean, I, I really I've had the good fortune to meet a lot of designers and a lot of publishers, and they're just nice people like they're the kind of people who would make sure that you're in the rule book. You know what I mean? <laughs> that, they're going to do that for you. You know, it would never be like, oh, well, who is this? This is just a person who played my game. You know, they they don't like have a high horse at all. They're like right down there because they're gamers like we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while I haven't had the, the opportunity to meet uh, 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 Harold Buchanan, I, I totally get that, you know, he, he would do that because 
everybody that I've met in the hobby is just really gracious about, you know, people who help at all with, you know, playing a game, testing a game, uh, poking at it, pulling at it, trying to make it the best that it can be. And so that's fantastic. I'm glad that uh, uh, you were acknowledged there. And I'll have to look for that. So now that I've had the chance to meet you, I can go, look, I know that lady. (laughs) So anyway, well, listen, thank you both very much for uh, agreeing to be on the show tonight to talk about uh, Churchill and, of course, give a a little bit of a a talk about, uh, uh, you know, liberty or death. I think that's another one that's going to be a fascinating title for people to explore. And maybe we can talk about it more in depth at a later date when all of us have had more time to play it. How's that sound? That sounds great. It's been an absolute pleasure to be on your podcast. And anytime you want us back on, just send us a shout. We'll uh, we'll make it happen. Well, fantastic. Thank you very much. And Carissa, thank you for uh, um, being able to make some time and be on the podcast as well. It's, a, it's always nice to get to meet new people and hear new perspectives. Definitely. Yeah, I don't, I don't get as much of an opportunity as TC does. So this has been lovely. Well, thank you very much. So for Carissa and TC and myself, I want to say uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening and have a great night.